it's very interesting to note this is one of those teachings which is very unambiguous, very sharp, very clear, that is totally ignored or defied by people calling themselves biblical, Bible-believing, conservative, literalist Christians. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryants, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've been talking about government and politics for a while now. All of these interesting terms, uh, just spent a couple of episodes talking about some of the theoretical structure of government and um political theory. But uh, let's get back to talking about some of these that have to do with actual uh, administration of government, starting with the word, well, administration, (laughs) administration. (laughs) Well, it's like so many words in English, it comes from French, and originally meant to care for someone or give them something. And we still use this in uh, the Catholic Church, the priest administers the sacraments. And of course, the word minister is a shortening of that. The minister is the one who administers. Um, One also administers an oath to when somebody is swearing in. And it's interesting to note that Quakers and members of some other religious groups refuse to swear oaths by God because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, says the following. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's the Ten Commandments he's referring to. Don't swear false oaths. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, it's very interesting to note this is one of those teachings which is very unambiguous, very sharp, very clear, that is totally ignored or defied by people calling themselves biblical, Bible-believing, conservative, literalist Christians, Mm. uh, most of whom would consider somebody that refused to swear an oath by God to be anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. So uh, the U.S. courts have long allowed believers and non-believers alike to solemnly swear instead of saying, so help me God. And uh, there is no legal requirement to place your hand on a Bible. A lot of people have this notion that somehow they're required to do that, but that's not true. Yeah. Back to the term administration. Originally, it was the action of making an organization run, administering it. But later, it was transferred to the name of the organization itself or a part of the organization. In modern democracies, the part of the government which carries out laws and policies, as opposed to the legislative branch which enacts the laws, is the administration. However, much law and rulemaking power has been ceded in the United States to administrations, rulemaking, and we've seen a a spate of that where Obama made a whole lot of new regulations and uh, Trump has said about reversing them. 
And legislators often work to influence policy by resolutions not aimed at enacting laws. So they often will say, well, we ought to be doing so-and-so, but don't actually pass a law. And so they're doing the sort of things that administrators used to do. So the lines have gotten blurred somewhat between the two, although I think there's general agreement now that uh, in the U.S. system, the three legs of government, uh, the administrative one, has gotten most of the power now. It's much more powerful than probably the founding fathers would have liked. Mm-hmm. And in modern presidential politics, the executive branch is known by the president's name. So we have the Bush administration right. and the Obama administration and the Trump administration. This goes back a ways. Right. Well, what do we have to say about the word uh, citizen? Well, you might guess it means the inhabitant of a city originally. If you lived in the city, you were a citizen. Mm. Uh, the word was possibly modeled on the earlier term denizen. A denizen of a certain area or region or city it was a person who lived there. People who like to write using fancy words often use denizen still today, although it's not something that's an ordinary street language. It also can mean a legally recognized subject or national with the rights, privileges, and duties of a citizen. It was used as a label for ordinary people in France after the revolution. And you were a citizen if you weren't a noble. And people would address each other if you didn't know somebody and say, well, citizen, um, think we should cut off the king's head or not? <laughs> uh, you know, so people would address each other as capital C citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that's pretty much a part of history. It's also sometimes used to distinguish between uh, civilians on the one hand, who would be citizens, and soldiers and police officers and people like that. Uh, armed people are different from citizens and uh, generally could mean somebody who's not engaged in the enforcement of the law and so on. Of course, there's John Wayne's use of citizen to mean, well, you ordinary settler out there that isn't really ready to fight for your rights. Mm. There's a lot of current debate about what makes one a citizen and um, how do you become a citizen and so on. Uh, citizenship is hotly debated right now with a tendency to restrict the meaning and try to get uh, fewer people becoming citizens on the right and on the left, trying to welcome more and get more people made citizens so that they can vote. And that has led, of course, to this big movement of Republicans seeking to restrict the number of people who vote by declaring many of them as non-citizens and discouraging people from becoming citizens and Democrats doing the opposite, going out and trying to get as many immigrants as possible to become citizens. Now, I want to go back for a minute and talk about the word politician. Back when we talked about that and the origin of that term around the polis, the city, mm-hmm. and how there was a sense historically etymologically, of using that term somewhat the way we might use citizen today. Mm-hmm. Right. Just be somebody who lives in the city and is a participating in the governments of the city. But with a Greek root rather than a French one. With a Greek root rather than a French one. Polis versus cité. Right, yeah. And I guess French would be Latinate. I haven't looked up the French etymology for cité. I don't know where that goes back to. 
Well, two different words that apply to the same concept. But of course, we don't use politician in that way anymore. A politician is strictly an elected leader. Yeah, or a would-be elected. <laughs> yeah, all would-be elected leaders. Okay, you have citizens and you have representatives. What's the word representative? How does that fit in? Well, in a representative democracy, the lawmakers are elected by popular vote, and they represent you in the sense that they're supposed to vote the way you would like them to. And so you're not doing the voting yourself. A direct democracy, you do the voting. You have a town meeting, and uh, everybody that shows up gets a vote. That's direct democracy. But if you elect a city council and the city council does the voting, they're representing you. So they're representatives in the generic sense, but in the House of Representatives, uh, they're represent. But uh, senators are representatives too in the generic sense. In England, it's the members of Parliament are usually referred to as MPs, who are representatives. Uh, they're the members of the lower house. The upper house, of course, is the House of Lords, who don't represent anything except themselves, and uh, don't have hardly any power. So the members of the lower house of Congress are called representatives for short. They're also often called congressmen, which is interesting, although senators are really congressmen too. Sometimes it's used generically. It can be kind of sloppy terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, senators comes from Rome and the ancient Roman Senate and originally came from a root meaning old the elders who were the wise men who ruled over Rome were called senators. And uh, we still associate that root with words like seniors, you know, go to the senior center and senior discount, things like that. Seniority, that means you're, you've been on the job longer, therefore older. And, of course, senile. But we haven't used senile in that sense since Strom Thurmond, right? <laughs> For representatives. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, there was some doubt about John McCain for a while there, and then they decided that it was actually not just old age, but a brain tumor that might be causing some of his problems. Mm -hmm. Okay, those are representatives, and here in the U.S. we have Congress, members of Congress. Congressmen. Yeah. Um, but, of course, now a lot of them are Congresswomen, so you have to be careful when you're going to refer to somebody as a congressman. Mm-hmm. Usually, though, it refers to the House of Representatives. That just seems to be a custom. There's no particular logic to it because senators are certainly members of Congress, but uh, that's the way it gets used. Yeah, right. As you said, there's a lot of sloppy spillover back and forth. Uh, you could say the bill passed Congress when you mean it passed the House, right? Right. So you got to clarify that if you're a little fuzzy on the context there. Now, uh, Congress, of course, can pass things through, and the executive branch can veto those things. What's a veto? Well, originally, it's just a Latin phrase, meaning I forbid, or a word, rather, I forbid. So it's a conjugation of a verb, veto, being I forbid. Okay. Yeah, it's just the first-person form of the verb. Originally, it referred to the power of the Roman tribunes to oppose measures that had been passed by the Senate. And in the U.S., of course, presidents can reject legislation passed by Congress. Uh, Congress can override vetoes by a two-thirds majority in both houses, which is tough to achieve. It doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. Now, there's an odd quirk in our system called the pocket veto. Very few people know about it. Um, 
political nerds get really excited about it, and sometimes it can have some pretty powerful effects. But the Constitution says that if the president does not sign or explicitly veto a bill within 10 days, not including Sundays, the bill automatically becomes a law unless Congress adjourns before that deadline, in which case the bill dies and must be reintroduced and passed again when Congress reconvenes. So the president, by just putting off signing long enough as Congress is getting ready to go out on recess and disband itself, uh, can do what's called a pocket veto. He's sticking the bill in his pocket instead of signing it. Andrew Jackson was the one that came up with that term, called it a pocket veto, put it in your pocket and forget about it. But it only works if Congress is about to be dismissed, right? Yes, and what they've invented in recent years is to keep Congress in session by having one person stay in Congress and call Congress to order in the morning and then um, adjourn a second later. So it's just a, a game that they play saying, OK, Congress is still in session, still going on. There's this guy and they take turns doing this. What is the advantage of a pocket veto? The thing is that um, this is a form that can't be overridden by a vote in Congress of two-thirds. It just kills the bill immediately. So it's uh, very attractive to administrators who really hate a law. Or a law that they don't want to be seen to be vetoing, that by saying, I'm vetoing this, there might be some popularity in the bill, but they really disapprove of it, so they can quietly just let it die. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, Congress could just as easily reconvene and repass the same bill, and you'd be back in square one. Yes. <laughs> so... Uh, Andrew Jackson is going to have to deal with it down the road, I guess, theoretically. Well, maybe. But what can happen, of course, is there is an election, meanwhile, and the numbers change and the bill might not pass the next time. Well, OK, if that is the reason why Congress is in recess. Now, Congress can also go on recess for vacation. Yes. So uh, if Congress reconvenes and it's all the same people, I guess the pocket veto would work in an election year. So every other year you might be able to exercise this and have that effect of not vetoing something that might appear to be popular and just hoping for uh, results to swing in your direction on the next election. And then that next group of Congress will not pass the bill that you don't like. So you get the best of all worlds there. It's a pretty rare phenomenon, actually. And uh, but it's just an interesting quirk that comes up because it's in the Constitution. And, you know, people that talk about constitutional originalism, well, that's what the founders and framers of the Constitution wanted. That's what they said. Uh, should we update it to the attache veto or the briefcase veto or something, though? <laughs> uh, or the junk mail veto. <laughs> yeah, junk mail veto. I've seen the size of some of these bills when they have the signing ceremonies, and it doesn't look like they really stick them in their pocket. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about another one that's much more controversial, the line item veto. Yeah, this is something that has been advocated for a long time, mostly by conservatives. Uh, Republicans, when they are in power, when they have the presidency in power, I should say, when they have the White House uh, like the item of a line item veto. So Congress passes a bill, a spending bill typically, and they would like the president to be able to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and build the atomic bombs that are in here, but this food program for uh, pregnant poor mothers, I'm going to take out. 
that would be a line item veto. So you go through line by line in the bill and decide what parts of it you're going to veto. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The uh, line item veto has been used at various times. There was a line item veto act passed in 1996 and president Clinton used it 82 times to uh, disapprove of expenditures that Congress wanted him to make when the Republicans were in control. And, um, it was finally ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court two years later. So there was just a narrow period of two years where the line item veto was there. There's still people who would like to have a constitutional amendment to install a line item veto. And it gets uh, promoted at state political levels as well. And in fact, some states do grant some line item veto power to their governors. And uh, that can get to be very hot and uh, raise a lot of ire on the parts of uh, legislators and voters alike. Um, the idea of a line item veto was originally to eliminate pork barrel spending. Um, people don't ship pork in barrels anymore. And the idea of you know giving somebody a barrel full of pork to influence them is something that's pretty much vanished from our imagination. But we still talk about pork barrel politics. And that's when you say, okay, I will vote for the extension of the debt limit if you will build a new um, Navy shipyard in my city or will name the local post office after my uncle. Um, well, usually that doesn't involve a lot of money, so that wouldn't be pork barrel. But there's a lot of this special interest spending that gets in that way where you say we've got um, a creationist museum in our town that needs a lot of support. And uh, you should put that in the defense bill. They love to do it in the defense bill because nobody wants to be seen as voting against the defense bill. So it gets loaded down with all kinds of special interest spending, which are referred to, especially in Congress and by you know, journalists as well, as pork barrel spending. So the whole idea of the line item veto was originally to do away with that kind of thing. But uh, that's not how the power is allocated in Congress to allow uh, a line item veto. Congress is supposed to write the legislation and then the administration either approves it or vetoes it. It can't do a selective shopping uh, according to the Constitution as ruled by the Supreme Court. And pork barrel is often shortened to just pork. Yes. There's a lot of pork in this bill. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people probably imagine that there's a lot of fat in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a vegetarian, I approve. <laughs> the pork is the excess stuff you don't need, right? But I remember this really um, for coming to my consciousness, George Bush Sr. advocating for the line item veto. Right. Of course, he never got it, but uh, it was sort of poetic justice that it befell uh, his foe, President Bill Clinton. Right. <laughs> he was the one who got to take advantage of this for a brief period of time. Yeah. Now, along with the line item veto, something else that's highly controversial and may or may not be unconstitutional are signing statements. Yes. Yeah. So there are three different kinds. The presidential signing statement is when the president signs a bill, but he simultaneously uh, makes a statement objecting to certain aspects of the new law and sometimes just implying, I'm not going to enforce this part of the law. I'm signing the law because I got to approve of the law as a whole, but I just really don't think this part makes sense. Now, there's a constitutional version that asserts that the law is constitutionally defective. Uh, so he wants to guide the executive agencies to limit its 
implementation by saying, okay, I'm signing this law, but the, you know, this part in here, uh, that I really disapprove of, I think it's unconstitutional and I'm not going to ask the administrative agency in charge to enforce that part of the law because if we take this to court, it's going to get thrown out. That's one kind. Another is more political. So often it just defines terms that are used in the law in political ways to guide executive agencies in its implementation uh, in a direction that suits the president better than what the legislators had in mind when they used their first. And then there's a purely rhetorical kind, uh, which is, uh, this is an awful law. I feel I have to sign it, but you should vote these characters who put this law together out of office because this is just a terrible idea. And so he's just trying to stir up the political constituency uh, by making a signing statement of this kind. Uh, George Bush was particularly noted for his signing statements. He did a lot of them. George Bush, the junior, the second George Bush, yeah. Second George Bush, yeah, W. They have no status in law, which is interesting. It's never been settled. Uh, the Supreme Court has never weighed in and said one way or another what uh, what influence it has. So far, it's just mostly moaning and groaning and complaining on the part of the president. But the success that they have, the power they have, is just by the president's deciding, okay, I'm just not going to enforce this law. So in a sense, it could be seen as similar to civil disobedience, where the citizens decide, you know, this law really, it's a uh, segregation law, a segregation of lunch counters, say, or buses, is really unconstitutional. And although the court hasn't ruled on it yet, I'm just not going to obey that law anymore. And that's what Martin Luther King was all about. And that was civil disobedience. And this is the president engaging in civil disobedience at a different level, usually in a very different political direction. Uh, I want to talk some more about these terms that are, um, they get confusing for me. Like the next one, filibuster. First of all, you know, I always want to spell it with two L's, filibuster, because I always think of like filling up time, right? It's just filler. Mm. It has an interesting history, and then it has morphed into being different things along the way. Uh, how does the filibuster work? How has it been applied in the past? How does it get applied now? It didn't originally have anything to do with busting or filling. <laughs> its origins are pretty obscure, but one theory is that it comes from a Dutch word for freebooter, a kind of pirate a particular kind of pirate, those who pillaged the Spanish colonies in the West Indies in the 17th century were called freebooters. And uh, late in the 19th century, it begins to be used for an act of obstruction in a legislature. So uh, I don't know how you get from pirates to people stalling to prevent a bill from being passed, but the polite way to describe this, and the senators love to use this, is extended debate. You never say, I'm going to filibuster this bill. You say, we're going to engage in an extended debate. Yeah. Now, they used to have filibusters in the House as well until 1842 when the rules did away with filibustering in the House. That is, uh, speaking and speaking during the debate and preventing a vote from taking place. And, of course, it's still in the Senate. And when the news says, well, they don't have the votes that they need for two-thirds to pass this bill... Um, those are usually not bills which actually constitutionally require two-thirds. They're just, it takes two-thirds to end a filibuster. And it's become sort of pro forma that whichever party is out of power is the one that will say, okay, you can try to pass this, but uh, you just 
have 51 votes and we're going to engage in a filibuster if you pass that. And all you have to do these days is say, we're going to filibuster. And that has the effect of a real filibuster. It's rare that somebody actually takes the floor and starts reading from the phone book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's the change I'm thinking of. Is It seems odd to me that you don't actually have to go through the pain of filibustering anymore. You just say the word. It's like a casting a spell, <laughs> and uh, it just takes place. Right. And in the Senate, they've got some exceptions that can't be filibustered, uh, notably uh, things that affect only the budget and have no other things in them. So one of the th- problems they got into when they tried to overturn Obamacare is they wanted to change policy as well as funding. And so that didn't work. But uh, the Senate finally made a major change in 2013 by invoking what's called the nuclear option. Now, this is way exaggerated language that was developed by some conservatives to say, well, maybe we should just do away with a filibuster altogether instead of just nibbling around it and, you know, making it harder to carry out a filibuster and so on. Um, so the nuclear option was to say, okay, let's just change the Senate rules. And once the filibuster is eliminated, you can't bring it back. So that's why it's called the nuclear option. This is an extreme action. It hasn't happened, but what they did the Democrats eliminated filibusters on executive branch nominations and judicial appointments, except for the Supreme Court. So a minority can still prevent the appointment of somebody to the Supreme Court by filibustering, but not to other judicial appointments. And then in 2017, this year, the Republicans eliminated this exception. So now they can get through with just 51 votes. Uh, nominations to the Supreme Court. And that is something that's looked at with great dismay by liberals because the Supreme Court, of course, can have huge influences for generations and those people cannot be removed from office easily. And usually it's only by death or extreme frailness in old age. So their appointment lasts a very long time. The term was invented by Trent Lott of Mississippi in 2003, nuclear option. Mm-hmm. So um, the debate is, should the majority always rule or are there certain rights of the minority that have to be preserved? And when you're arguing for filibusters, you say, well, we just can't let this slim majority override what is really important to the rights of people. And on the other hand, there's the view that democracy is about majorities and the majority should win. We've seen how this doesn't work with the Electoral College, where several presidents have been elected with a minority of the popular vote. And this also then goes on in the Senate. Now, a lot of people associate the term filibuster with a famous movie, 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and James Stewart makes this uh, exhaustive resistance. I've seen some analysis of that that really made fun of it and says filibustering was never like that. Oh, that's highly romanticized, of course. Very romanticized. But great theater. (laughs) Right. And so when liberals are resisting doing away with a filibuster, they like to associate themselves with that image of James Stewart getting hoarse as he carries on his filibuster. Mm -hmm. Um, One tradition 
for filibustering is to fill up the time by just reading long documents, not literally the phone book, which is the one that usually gets talked about, but uh, newspaper articles and so on. And in 2014, Ted Cruz filibustered against Obamacare in a sort of a one-man grandstanding. And part of that, he famously recited Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham and gave a recipe for green eggs and ham. Mm. And if you know that book, uh, he doesn't seem to understand. The point of the story is to say that you may actually like something that you initially object to if you just try it. <laughs> you know, I do not like green eggs and ham. Yes. It turns out to be pretty tasty. So it was inappropriate and, uh, shall we say, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to go back and wonder how the association with pirates comes to be a term that's used for a procedure in the legislature, you can refer to our conversation on kleptocracies. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one more term we should fit in here while we're talking about filibustering is cloture. Oh, for sure. Media likes to use the term because I think they like using terms that people don't readily understand. <laughs> Yeah, it's very French, clôture. It's uh, not to be confused with couture, high fashion, but ending a debate by a majority vote. Uh, in Britain, it is used at first and is most now uh, used in reference to ending a filibuster by a two-thirds vote of the U.S. Senate. And that means invoking cloture. Uh, people talk a lot these days about people getting closure, which is a different thing. That is... Um, having some great tragedy or shock in your life and then being able to reconcile yourself to it in some way or calm down and, and overcome the trauma and get closure. And there's been a lot of criticism of that um, from people who deal with various kinds of trauma uh, as probably a mistaken concept altogether. Uh, but don't confuse closure with cloture. Mm-hmm. Cloture can be quite traumatic if you are on the losing side of a filibuster debate. Mm -hmm. Right. There's one more we should talk about related to filibuster uh, reconciliation. I think we have time for one more here. Okay. Uh, originally, this was a theological term. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice in restoring humanity back to God's favor was reconciliation. He reconciled the souls of the believers to salvation, to God. Uh, it's been used interestingly in South Africa in 1995 after the end of apartheid. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up to investigate and error abuses committed during the apartheid era. It encouraged people to confess and repent their unjust acts without danger of being jailed or otherwise punished. The idea is to get people to apologize and um, it identified people found to be victims to receive government assistance. The oppressors would speak the truth and then the reconciliation would be the government uh, giving government assistance to people. But it's also paradoxically used in our government as a name for a legislative maneuver to avoid filibusters. And if you use reconciliation, it can require only a simple majority to pass bills in the Senate. It has its limits. I think it can be only used on budget bills, if I remember rightly. And it has been used 
since 1974 several times to rush measures through Congress. And it's paradoxical because you're running roughshod over the opposition and doing exactly the opposite of reconciling anybody to it. So it's a word whose uh, root meaning doesn't reflect its actual application at all. Mm. Well, I think we've done it again, Paul. I think we've spent the time talking about all of these interesting terms, and we still have more to go, but I would like to leave some more of this for next time. We have uh, caucuses and lobbies, lobbyists, all of these terms, some of them we don't like, but uh, we better talk about them because I think they can be misunderstood. We'll save that for next time. Okay. Talk to you next time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.